Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. The major league owners were thrilled about the control they had gained over salaries by means of innovations like the reserve clause and the blacklist. But the players were increasingly disgruntled, leading a series of challengers to step forward. The Union Association debuted in 1884, and both components of that name signaled its intentions. The word association placed it squarely in the tradition of decentralized predecessors, like the National Association, while the term union was, if anything, more provocative. Workers' unions of the era were extremely polarizing entities, with the loyalty they evoked in many working men equaled in intensity by the hostility that many Americans felt toward them. Writer H.L. Mencken liked to tell how his father hated unions so much that while working in Baltimore in the 1890s, he positively refused to enter a saloon near his office that was called the Union Bar. As Mencken recalled, the proprietor of that saloon was named Ruth, who later became the father of none other than George Herman Babe Ruth. With the very word union eliciting such strong feelings, the Union Association's name made clear its allegiance to the working man, a stance that led it to reject the reserve clause and make aggressive efforts to sign players under contract to teams in the established major leagues. Unfortunately, only St. Louis owner Henry Lucas had the financial means to afford the salaries of established stars, creating a competitive imbalance that ruined the Union Association's first pennant race. It never had a chance to rectify that problem, folding after a single season. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Howdy, folks. It's your pal, Tim. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious little podcast devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We appreciate your finding us and uh, welcome back to the proceedings this week as we go way back. It's uh, moldy oldie baseball time. We're going back to the uh, the earliest days of the professional game and um, a revisit a little bit with a little bit more um, sort of um, specificity around uh, some stuff we've talked about in some uh, previous episodes. In particular, this is the Union Association uh, in the midst of a crazy year, 1884, uh, when Major League Baseball, or then known as Organized Baseball, had three competing leagues going on and uh, would not be the first time uh, nor the last that there would be competitors to the uh, Organized Baseball uh, realm. But uh, to set the tone, uh, our guest this week, our repeat guest this week, uh, is Bill Reisick. He's going to uh, help us understand a little bit about the craziest year in probably baseball history, if you really go back and, and look at it. 
1884. And the book uh, that uh, Bill has written, it's called Baseball's Wildest Season. Three leagues, 34 teams, and the chaos of 1884. Uh, you may remember Bill from uh, a bunch of previous episodes years ago. We had, it's been a long time. In uh, 2017, we uh, talked with Bill about the uh, uh, the uh, National Association, which is one of sort of the uh, precursors uh, to the National League and, and the American Association. Uh, and also back in 2017, we talked to Bill about the uh, beloved and oft-forgotten New York Titans. They have the uh, AFL and the original uh, version or the original form of what is now known as the uh, New York Jets. We're recording this uh, on the 80th birthday, by the way, of Broadway. Joe Namath, one of the uh, greats in uh, New York Jets uh, all-time history. I don't think uh, Joe uh, had the pleasure of, uh, of wearing a Titans uniform. And I, I put pleasure in quotes, of course. Um, but uh, those were fun episodes. Check those back out. Uh, in our archives, in the feeds that you might get. Uh, but the Union Association is a topic in particular that we did talk about with our pal Justin McKinney uh, back in our episode 264, about a year ago. Um, and uh, we've also talked about the Union Association's Wilmington Quick Steps with our pal John Springer back in uh, 2018. Uh, but this is the story of the, uh, the proceedings in 1884 that includes not only the Union Association, but also the American Association, uh, the crazy um, second challenger league, shall we say, in the mix to the original National League, the American Association being uh, a little bit more on the edge, shall we say, uh, uh, willing to play on Sundays and willing to sell beer at their games, uh, drawing a lot more attention, shall we say, than the staid uh, origination of the National League. And in steps this Union Association story, um, which um, is uh, fascinating, crazy, uh, just uh, out and out nuts in some cases. Uh, the St. Louis Maroons, you may have heard the Maroons referenced uh, in uh, baseball circles this year as the Tampa Bay Rays got off to their blazing hot start. Uh, perhaps the most blazing hot start in baseball history was indeed the St. Louis Maroons uh, that were essentially the, um, I call them the sort of charter and or flagship franchise, perhaps, of the Union Association. We'll get into that conversation with Bill in a few minutes. Uh, Henry Lucas, a guy you should know, um, who was kind of the brain trust behind this Union Association. Now, it only lasted a year, and uh, it uh, had various fits and starts during the course of that year. The Maroons, uh, by all accounts, pretty much the uh, the strongest and um uh, shall we say, most advantaged team in that uh, brief appearance. But the Union Association uh, in 1884 made for some very interesting times across all of professional baseball and uh, the UA, as we call it in the uh, in the insider's lingo, uh, has been and has uh, always been, not always, but mostly been recognized uh, as a professional uh, major league by baseball historians, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and all that kind of stuff. So let us go back to that time in 1884 to talk about uh, the craziest season, baseball's wildest season. According to our guest, Bill Rysak, again, the story of the three leagues at the time, the National League, the American Association, and the Union Association. If you uh, are looking for uh, stories about uh, rogue managers like uh, Dan O'Leary and Hustlin' Horace Phillips and we want to talk about the St. Louis Maroons and, and their eventual merge into the uh, National League and then sort of uh, whimpering off into the distance, uh, never to be seen or heard again. 
um, this is your episode and you will enjoy it. Lots of very interesting things. Um, and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff, regardless of how old it is. It's um, it's timely as almost like today's uh, headlines, because uh, it is uh, ripe with uh, very similar is- issues such as players and getting fair compensation and the owners and their desire to milk more out of these players and playing conditions and stadiums and all that kind of stuff. Uh, our conversation with Bill Reiser coming up in just a moment's time. Our sponsor, a uh, little shout out this week. How about uh, Ebbets Field Flannels? Uh, Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. That's two B's, one T, Ebbets dot com. Um, great site for any baseball nostalgist, uh, but not just baseball, all kinds of other um, other stuff too. Uh, soccer and hockey, uh, Negro League stuff, Um Ball caps and flannel jerseys, uh, football jerseys, all kinds of replica replica apparel. He says, uh, "No, uh, no union association garb that we can sort of see uh, at Ebbets.com, but lots of great stuff that goes way back, all the way to things like the Federal League. If you're a fan of um, uh, one of the teams that uh, was domiciled in St. Louis." Uh, years after this uh, conversation this week of the Union Associations, St. Louis Maroons, how about the St. Louis Terriers? The 1914 road jersey is there. It's gorgeous. It's, 200, it's, uh, it's it, gorgeous. Uh, it can be uh, customized, um, as well as all the other, uh, most of the other teams in that uh, Federal League of 1914, like the Pittsburgh Stogies, um, the Baltimore Terrapins, the Buffalo Buff Feds, you remember they were called the Chicago Whales, uh, the Indianapolis Hoosiers, you name them, they're all in there and um, check them out. And that's just that's the older stuff. But there's even newer, older stuff and uh, the high quality of the Ebbets Field Flannels brand uh, continues uh, for sure. Ebbets.com, check them out. Lots of great stuff there. And of course, a promo code for you. Good Seats 10. Good seats and the number 10 is the promo code at Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S, too busy, one T. Ebbets.com. Thank you for your sponsorship, Ebbets Field Flannels. Uh, it's awesome stuff, and hopefully you'll check them out and give them some love. Why don't you? All right, let's give some love now to uh, our return guest to our microphones, Bill Rysick. We're going to be talking about 1884. It's going to sound like it was almost like yesterday. Uh, given all the uh, topics and issues uh, afoot here. Uh, Let's talk about the uh, Union Association and its competition with the National League and the then American Association. It's oldie time baseball. Please, as always, enjoy. Now, if I remember correctly from our last chat about five plus years ago, uh, you kind of had some similar uh, inklings towards the same subject. I know our previous discussions, we talked about the uh, the Titans, the pre-New York Jets uh, of the AFL, and, and then some early baseball stuff. And if I remember correctly, I think you had somewhat of an affinity for things like early baseball and some of these other untold stories that we somehow like to obsess about. Always. I say when, whenever I have a book come out, usually people will say, you know, why did you write about that? And sometimes the inflection is more like, Why? Uh, because a lot of them are obscure minor league football and yeah, did one on, on minor league football a few years ago. And, and, and it, if you're looking for things that failed, I mean, in 1884, whole leagues failed, teams failed. I mean, it's just, 
It's interesting to see why things happen, and I'm I'm always been attracted to that. I have no desire to write the Derek Jeter story or you know something like that. It's, it's unusual stuff that interests me. Well, it's also interesting too because uh, it's you know we're talking about uh, we're going to be talking about the 1884, which is obviously eons ago. But the reality is that uh, many of the themes that we've explored, um, you know, in you know current uh, situations in sports, are fairly recent defunct or dearly departed or or even further back a lot of the themes not all of them but most of them um seem to echo uh they just take on sort of different forms and and i think this story is certainly uh rife with um some of the things that still bedevil uh professional sports uh, baseball specifically but sports generally today um you know players treatment and unionization possibilities and owners and money, uh, which is always the root of all evil and, and all those things. And um, I, I, I'm going to guess that the, the more you dug into this story, um, the, you heard some rhyming of history. Well, I saw a lot of similarities between 1884 and uh, minor league football. And generally what happens is a group gets involved, has some success. They get excited. You know, we've got to expand. We've got to do more. And they expand beyond what's rational. You know, they get, they pay too much in salaries. They geographically, their uh, expense is too much. Uh, minor leagues just end up tra- you know, too much in travel expenses, too many games. They, they just get excited. And if, you know, same thing with minor league football. If they stayed within a small footprint, paid the players small amounts, didn't try to become major league, they could make it. But, you know, people with their own teams like that have egos. You know, cities want to be the best. They always try to take it to the next level, and they rarely make it. Well, let's let's go back to uh, this period of time because uh, eighteen eighty three. I mean, a lot of people sort of listening to this conversation are going to say, "Well, that's just way back." Well, the reality is that uh, at the end of eighteen eighty three, when kind of the story sort of starts, um, baseball professionally pretty solidly although tributaries existed prior was already a professional thing for a good seven seasons already right so this is not even at the earliest part of baseball's sort of professional uh inception do you want to kind of set the table a little bit as to what 1883 kind of was because it seems like at the outset of this story things were humming along and 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 there was no lack of interest in baseball on a professional level well, I mean, being a National Association guy, I go back to 1871 rather than 1876. And, you know, the National Association was an experiment. Uh, it was a start, lots of problems. I wound up being supplanted by the National League. And, and one tends to think that, oh, well, the National League came in and everything was great all of a sudden. It wasn't. The late 70s were terrible times for the National League. They went through team after team. There were only two teams that made it from the start till the, uh, I think, 1880 just Chicago and Boston. And uh, then the Ameri- in the early 80s, the economy got better. Uh, in, the eight- in the 1870s, the panic of 1873 was still impacting employment, income, all those things, and baseball, obviously. And then when the American Association came in, attendance went through the roof. They had two leagues, and they were drawing more people than ever. Uh, the American Association had a lower admission rate, uh, they allowed the beer sales, liquor sales on the grounds. They played on Sundays. Uh, they appealed to the working class, but the tenants, you know, doubled. And the American Association, the new newcomers, 
outdrew the National League. So after 1883, it was euphoria. Everybody thought, you know, they were making money. The teams are making anywhere from, you know, 50,000 down to 10,000 uh, per team. And in, in the old days, in the late 70s, they didn't make money at all. And now they're making forty, fifty thousand dollars a team, which was pretty good money back then. Well, was it because of this sort of uh, overnight, if you will, competition that kind of maybe juiced sort of the the general interest across the board? That was some of it, because what they were if they had two uh, teams in a city, the most exciting games were the games for the city championship. They weren't necessarily the, the league games, but when the Metropolitans played the, of the American Association played the New York club where they call them the Gothams of the National League. They would draw five thousand a game. Uh attendance otherwise was maybe a couple thousand a game. And Philadelphia, they had the two teams. Uh they had rival teams that were playing each other. And those were huge draws. They were exhibitions. They weren't new regular games, but they were huge draws. Uh so the competition did that. And a lot of it was the economy. If you look at baseball historically it's thrived when there's a good economy, and it's floundered when there was a bad economy. During the Depression, teams were barely, you know, of the 1930s, teams were barely hanging on. Well, you described that that at, at the end of 83, that the, the National League and the American Association, despite uh, the somewhat uh, fairly recent competition at that time, were essentially getting along with each other, uh, whether that was official or unofficial or both. Um so I, I guess they both had somewhat of an incentive to, I don't know, kind of not rock the boat, I guess, and, and kind of grow each other's pies as if it were, as it were and, and compete on merits, if you will, and, and you know, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, show their supremacy in their own sort of competitive way. Um, but that's not what was going on. I'm sorry, when, when competition came in, existing league's first impulse was usually to try to crush it. And if they couldn't crush it, then they would like to accommodate it. As I said in, in one of the chapters, that throughout the history of baseball, two's company, three's a crowd. If there was only one league, they generally didn't do that well. Three leagues was too many. But two, they generally prospered if they colluded properly. Uh, because when another league comes in, obviously, they start bidding up salaries, uh, cause expenses to go up. So they began to realize they better start respecting each other's contracts. And there was a formal agreement called the National Agreement between the American Association and the National League where they agreed to cooperate. They both uh, respected the reserve clause, or, or then it was really the reserve rule. It wasn't in the contract, which came about for the first time in 1879. So they had a duopoly going until the upstart Union Association came around and spoiled the party. Well, in, in in particular, the, this guy we've talked about a couple of times in the past, Henry Lucas, um, he was kind of sort of the chief agitator. Any any particular sort of, you know, concise story as to why uh, this young man of, of means from St. Louis um, and and others that he sort of brought into the fold decided that a third league given the relative infancy of, of professional baseball generally, was a good idea? Well, it's the same way the American Football League started. They couldn't get into the existing league. You know, Lucas wanted a team, but he couldn't get in. Yeah, they had a team in uh, St. Louis already. Uh, Chris Vondera was the owner. Uh, he loved baseball. And I said, uh, you know, young men who inherit a lot of money generally pick up some vices. 
Uh, his wasn't women. It wasn't drink. It was baseball. Uh, he really did love baseball, had a field on his, in his mansion in the backyard where he and his friends played. Uh, he had an ego. And he found people with money. They saw how much money was being made by the other teams uh, or had an idea how much money was being made and said, this looks like a good thing to do. Let's get in on it. Uh, and the same reason people buy baseball teams today, ego gratification, money, love of the sport. It was no, no different back then. But they also, though, placed a couple of teams in cities where not only the National League had a team, but also a second team in the form of the American Association also existed, too, in addition to some other cities. Um, that seems like a recipe for disaster. I mean, you said three is a crowd. Um, I can imagine just, just having two teams in one market back in the day uh, was plenty competition enough, given, frankly, the disposable income that was frankly available in those markets if, if, if they were that substantial. You're, you're thinking rationally when you're a baseball owner, you don't think rationally. I think I said that uh, optimism got the better of good sense in 1884. Uh, it was. And, and the problem was that most of the cities that were viable for major leagues were taken by the, the American association of the national league. So if they wanted to get in, they, they had to go into these cities. They didn't have a lot of choice. There weren't a lot of cities that, that were left and they had to compete for players that were already there because the, the American, when the American association came in, there were empty cities. Philadelphia wasn't uh, part of the national league, nor was New York, nor was St. Louis. So they were able to come in and get some pretty good cities. Uh, they also could get some pretty good players. By the time Lucas and his crew came around, uh, the best cities were taken, the best players were taken. So they had to compete. They had to go in and go head to head. The um, the other leagues would make sure to try to go head to head with Lucas's team when he was there and avoid each other. Because you had Philadelphia, they had three teams. They had a Union Association team, a National League team, and an American Association team. You know, Cincinnati had two. Boston had two. So it, and it was it was, they were brutal competition. One of the more entertaining things to do is to read the Cincinnati newspapers where they had a union association team and an American association team, and they were just brutal to each other. And the saying always goes that sports writing was a contact sport back in the 19th century. You know, the names they called each other, Oliver Kaler writing on behalf of the AA and the UA writers, they were just calling each other names back and forth all, all season long. It was brutal competition. And one last story, they, the union association stole the American association's field they got the lease on it and the other team had to move out and they, they actually they took home plate with them but it was just a petty thing you know back and forth all year so i the the, the arrival of this third league has just got to be just nuts given the fact that that the the national league and the, and the american association had only kind of just gotten to their sort of uneasy uh coexistence with each other and not that you know not that long prior um uh, so uh, you, one could make the argument as this as 1884 dawns that that uh, the relationship was tentatively stable, so, shall we say, or, or tenuously stable. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and then you bring in sort of the, the this third party uh, in the form of the Union Association. Boy, oh, boy, it just it, it must have had sent alarm bells all, all across professional baseball. Uh, in 1882. The American Association was fighting with the National League 
Then they came to an accommodation. So they had a one-year honeymoon in 1883. Then in 1884, they were back at it. But they they got closer at that during that period of time because they united against the Union Association. I went through the um, correspondence of Abraham Mills, who was president of the National League, who just wrote lots of letters talking about how they were going to destroy the Union Association. And they always called them the wreckers. And they always called Lucas the wrecker, or millionaire Lucas the wrecker. Uh, they, they united against the Union Association. As I said, the first impulse was to crush the opponents, and they were successful in doing that. And we jumped to the end. You know, we, they ended up bringing them into their own fold and just you know, sort of cutting off the head of the Union Association after weakening it had a lot of body blows. Well, wasn't there also some other challenger league chat going on, like some of the minor leagues kind of trying to get a little larger and, and maybe seeing some of the uh, the success, especially since a, a challenger in the American Association kind of was successful? Um, uh, there were some others eyeing kind of similar slices of the pie. Well, you know, when, when I write a book, I don't start out with an outline and then try to fill out uh, that outline and write according to a plan. What I like to do is to, to get into the material, start reading the papers, reading the source documents, reading a few books, mostly contemporary accounts, and, and see where it takes me. Because you find out what they were thinking, what they were talking about, what was important to them. And a direction that I didn't expect I would be going in 1984 was the minor leagues. Because it was fascinating. I, I had a whole chapter on that called The Shadow of Their Former Selves. Uh, they were starting to get pretty stable in 1883. Because the minor leagues were a very precarious thing you know, prior to. There were very few leagues. There were a bunch of independent teams. There was a loosely um, governed national association. But the Northwestern League and the Eastern League in 1883 had pretty decent seasons. But they did, as I said, what, what most leagues do, they try, they try to expand. Uh, the Northwestern League went geographically way too far afield. And the salaries paid by the minor league teams were not that much different than those by, paid by the major league teams. And if you were a good player in the minor leagues, you could make more than some major league players. Uh, so they were paying big salaries. They were incurring big travel expenses and they weren't coming close to breaking even. Uh, you would uh, look at some of the attendance figures and they, and I think the Northwestern league, they had to pay a $75 guarantee to the visiting team, which means that, you know, 25 cents ahead, you've got to get 300 people just to pay the guarantee. And sometimes they weren't drawing 300 people. So, you know, let alone, never mind paying your own players, couldn't even pay the visiting players. Uh, they were in cities that were too small, uh, you know, Stillwater, uh, Muskegon. They just couldn't support a, a top-flight team. And the Northwestern League co- collapsed completely. They would Teams would fail. They'd bring in replacements. They'd fail. They'd bring in replacements. They'd fail. Uh, the Eastern League staggered through to the end with about five teams left at the end. Uh, other leagues... Oil and Iron League, Iron and Oil League collapsed. Uh, the, the one league that made it through, one of the leagues that made it through, was the Connecticut League, in my own state of Connecticut. They only played three days a week. They were only within the state of Connecticut, which isn't that big. They kept salaries down, and they survived. They weren't going on to the next level. Everybody else wanted to be bigger. They knew who they were. They stayed within their expense budgets, and they survived. But the minor leagues were just an absolute disaster in 1884. 
But but it seems like it almost gave some credence to uh, the gents trying to get this uh, third league with the Union Association up and running because at least it, it gave some indication that um, that there maybe was more, I don't know, fields to be plowed, if you will, than just what the National and the American had, had, been, had been doing up until that point. Or maybe I'm thinking rationally again, maybe it was just out of spite because they weren't opening up the door to let a new franchise in. Yeah, they, they didn't want Lucas in. He wound up also in Altoona, which was a terrible choice and didn't last very long because he couldn't get into some other cities. Uh, they wound up in the last minute at Boston, didn't really have time to get a good team together. Uh, it was it, very difficult to do because the National League and the American Association were fighting him every step of the way. You know, he said there were you know fields to be plowed. I think they, the other two leagues had pretty much depleted the soil by the time Lucas came around. Uh, and some of, he had he had some good locations. He had a couple of good operators, but uh, there just wasn't enough to go around three ways. And what was sort of the kiss of death was that the economy started to go down. Now there wasn't a major panic in 1884, but there were some a lot of econ- a lot of companies failed. Uh, the Grant and the Grant Wood, uh, Grant and uh, I can't use this Grant's son, Fred Grant, was in a uh, partnership that went. And it had a spectacular failure. Uh, there were some Wall Street blowups. So with the economy going down, as I said, ex- expanding into a declining economy is a recipe for disaster. And that's what they did. You know, way too many teams. And the American Association expanded, added four teams before the season. One of the reasons they did that was to keep the Union Association out of those cities. Uh, the National League convinced the American Association they should be the ones to add and they wound up having to contract back to eight teams the next year. But, you know, so you've got four more teams in the American Association, entire new league of the Union Association, more minor league teams, just way more than anybody wanted to see. So when when the Union Association is, is ch- choosing its first cities to go after, it's really interesting to see. I mean, you, you have a, a, a comparison of, of the various uh, major metropolitan areas at the time, and I think it was on page eight or so of the book, page nine, um, where you've got teams in, in Philadelphia. There are three teams. You've got three team team in each league, um, a, a large city. I think it was arguably the second largest uh, city behind New York at that time. But uh, even New York only had two franchises, not three. Why Philadelphia to have uh three franchises, you know, arguably maybe not even capable of, of supporting two. They found a backup. Uh, Tom Pratt was there. Tom had been an old pitcher back uh, in the pre-major uh, league days. And uh, he had been successful in business, and he was willing to back a team there. Uh, they found somebody in Chicago to back a team, A.H. Henderson. And of course, St. Louis was going to be in. That was Lucas's home city. And they wanted George Wright to back a team in Boston. It was basically where these people, where they could find somebody, come up with the seed money to uh, start the team. Uh, and they said they were left one franchise short, and they wound up going to Altoona, which was a major mistake. It was isolated, too small. There were only 20,000 people in Altoona. And they lasted till the end of May, and they were done. Where do the where do the players from the Union Association come from, and how did the American Association and the National League um, 
gird for battle, so to speak? I mean, were they fearful that they would be raided? Um, was this kind of a players-friendly league? Was more money, uh, say, like the old World Football League being thrown around to, to kind of entice people to, to jump? Lucas did. He offered big money, and he offered longer-term contracts, and he would um, back them up with them, like pay a lot up front. And that's the difference because you had this new league and you're, say you're playing with a National League team, if you left, you jumped your reserve, you would be blacklisted. So what players didn't want to do, sign a contract with the union association, get blacklisted, and have the team fail and default in the contract the first month or two. So they were paying big advances on those salaries to make sure that they got their – they were getting big advances to make sure they got their money. They were offering a lot of money. They were tempting them. And it was ironic because you had the uh, National League and the American Association talking about the sanctity of the contract, the sanctity of the reserve rule and all that. But if players signed with the Union Association, they did everything they could to entice them to break those contracts with the Union Association. And the papers didn't miss the irony of that. They had all these gentlemen who are so talking about uh, contracts and honor are trying very hard to get these people to break their contracts. And it was brutal. I mean, they would go and, you know, take people out of a hotel and drive them around and try to convince them, give them money, try to convince them to break their contract. And a lot of them did. Uh, the union, union association started out wanting to play nice. Uh, they said they would respect existing contracts. They would not respect the reserve rule, but they respect existing contracts and they would not try to talk people out of, contracts they had already signed. But after a while, after Lucas lost a number of signees, they threatened to sue. They said, we're going to court. We're going to get injunctions. And Tony Mullane, who was notorious for this type of thing, wound up jumping all over the place. And he'd get an advance, sign, renege, go somewhere else, get another advance. Uh, it was, it was, the contracts were just wild and woolly that year. Players jumping back and forth. And leagues trying to poach players from other leagues. Uh, it, it was all season long. It happened and it didn't, didn't stop in me in August, the uh, Cincinnati club of the union association got three of the top players from Cleveland and basically did the Cleveland team. in. they didn't last past the end of the year. Cleveland folded the end of the year, but if Cincinnati it was a huge coup, they paid a lot of money uh, for a pitcher, a shortstop and a catcher. And, uh, pretty much put put an end to Cleveland. And that was a big blow. And because uh, Lucas said, after I think it was around July 1st, I'm no longer respecting contracts. They've been playing dirty, right? So now anything goes. And he had that big coup in August. This this was Cleveland in the National League at the time, correct? Yes. Yes. So one of the dynamics that, that's really intriguing to me, <clears throat> and I'm curious as to how uh, you sort of uh, read literally and figuratively into uh, the coverage of these teams. I mean, uh, the National League and the American Association prior to 84 um, only competed in a couple of markets. I think New York and Philadelphia, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, directly. And then the rest were uh, uh, largely, you know, filled in, if you will, in other markets that the National League hadn't uh, taken root at. But now when you bring in the the new union association, you now actually have competition in some of these cities that only had one franchise previously. So, for example, um, 
you had, uh, courtesy of the Union Association, two teams now in St. Louis, two teams now in Baltimore, two teams in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and Washington. Um, I guess the general question is how uh, you sort of hinted at it before, but how were these teams covered by their respective sort of news outlets um, were uh, and in both cases, frankly, the National League looking to the new startup in the American Association and then that be getting an even further new upstart. Um, how are sports writers kind of handling that? Were they looking at these two new leagues in succession as kind of inferior or not worth covering or, or were they kind of uh, sort of reviewed and, and followed it with gusto because it made for good copy and potentially, um, you know, competitive spirit and, and God forbid, <laughs> selling more newspapers? Yeah, uh, it depended on the city. And it's great today. I started researching baseball history in 1981, which meant you went to the library and had a microfilm machine and probably couldn't even print off it. It was just on a flat board. Uh, And now it has newspapers.com and newspaperarchive.com. It's fantastic. So you can look at all, if newspapers.com has it, you can see, you can see all these different newspapers. And like in Chicago, uh, most of the papers tended to ignore the union association they print under minor games with the Northwestern League and local semi-pro teams. As I said, Cincinnati was highly entertaining. I mean, in most cities where you had more than one team, they each had their own paper. So it was completely biased reporting. It was a union association paper. The union association was great. The other competing team, the National League or American Association, was evil, top to bottom. And what they would always do is accuse the other side of falsifying the crowd. You know, they would send reporters out to actually count the crowd and claim that the uh, the other side was lying when they reported they drew 2,500. It was actually 800. And they just, it was just, you know, it wasn't polite. Uh, it, you think writing is tough today. It, it, it was much worse back then. And in, in New York, you know, it, it wasn't as competitive because you had an American Association team and a National League team. But where it was UA and another league, it got really nasty. Uh, the reporting was just vitriolic in the extreme. Were, were there any competitive markets that the Union Association was in? And again, we're looking at uh, Philly and I guess, yeah, Philly and and uh, in Baltimore and St. Louis, certainly in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Washington. Uh, were, were any of those markets uh, better, if you will, for the Union Association? Did any of their teams uh, do well or pull some real significant punches or, or in all those cases where the was the American Association and I guess even the National League in the case of Philadelphia uh, deemed more superior? I mean, did any punch above their weight, so to speak, in this barely one season of existence? Cincinnati did fairly well. They said they, they got three, stole three players from Cleveland and they won. First of all, if you lasted the whole season, that was a success. Right. They lasted the, all the season. Outlaw Reds, right? The Outlaw Reds. And, you know, in those days, I said earlier on nicknames, that's when your retro sheet will talk about those. But back then, they, they really didn't use nicknames that often except for certain teams. Like the Boston team was called the Bostons. Or, you know, and I think the St. Louis team was called the Maroons a lot, but not always. They were called Lucas's Nine. It wasn't like today where you have the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Sometimes they use nicknames, but rarely 
rarely. You know, uh, Philadelphia national league team was called the Philadelphias. The New York team was called the New Yorks. Uh, but the uh, the Outlaw Reds, who were usually just called Cincinnati, the, the unions, Union Association Club, they did pretty well. They made it to the end of the season. Uh, I don't know if they made money, but they didn't lose that much. Uh, Lucas's team was the dominant team in the league, and they, they weren't bad. They, they were outdrawn by the American Association team. But in Philadelphia, the, they didn't make it to the end. The Keystones, Tom Pratt's Keystones failed in August. Uh, Boston team under George Wright made it to the end of the season, but only because they just poured money in. Uh, after the season ended, they said, I don't, we don't care if the Union Association is going to be around next year. We're not going to be part of it. They grew very poorly you know, in the hundreds, two or three hundred a game at the end. And Baltimore's team was not bad. Baltimore team and the Chicago team were both owned by A.H. Henderson, who was a mattress manufacturer. And he couldn't make it in Chicago. He couldn't compete there with the National League team, which was very strong. They moved to Pittsburgh. They couldn't compete in Pittsburgh. And finally, they shut down the Pittsburgh team and transferred the best players to Baltimore, where he you know, in the Baltimore UE team. And Baltimore made it to the end of the season and did somewhat well. They, they lost money, but they, they made it to the end and they weren't an embarrassment. So that's, I think I've gone through all the, the multiple teams. I think that's the only, those are the only cities that UA and somebody else. So that was about the, that's how they turned out. Besides talent raids, where was this, uh, where were the players coming from? Because, you know, you're talking about the, uh, the arrival of 10 plus and let's, we'll, we'll keep it somewhat, uh, broad, given how often these teams moved, it seemed, in the Union Association. But arguably overnight, you had, you know, at least, you know, almost a dozen new franchises sort of playing around. You're expanding the talent pool uh, quite significantly. Uh, and this after having done the same nary two, three years prior with the American Association's arrival at the top tier professional level, which itself was a relatively new thing being paid as professionals, right? We, we've we talked about, you know, ad nauseum up sort of the very uh, the rough and tumble sort of evolution of the, you know, amateur game into this rough uh, thing, rough edge thing called professionalism. Um, was there enough players to even support a league like this? Yeah, you know, it's and again, having written about other sports, you know, expanding to the AFL, minor leagues, they, they only say, well, there's not enough talent to go around. You look at the baseball in the 1950s, we can't expand. There's not enough talent. Talent is the lowest level ever. Talent has never been a problem. Money has been a problem, but talent has never been a problem. There's players everywhere. Um, they were in the minor leagues mostly. And minor leagues, I say, were loosely organized. There were semi pro teams running around. With they weren't affiliated with any league, just playing exhibitions, playing for their home city. There were lots of players around. No, uh, they were also different. not affiliated with their professional brethren like they are today either, right? No, no, no affiliation at all. Absolutely none. No, no, no concept of a farm system or anything like that. And uh, so there were a lot of players around. Uh, with all these teams, you know, it really hit was the minor leagues. They had a hard time finding players. Because not only were there a lot more major league teams, there were a lot more minor league teams. You know, they, they found them, but it was harder, and they had to pay more to get the top ones. That's what really killed them. Uh, I, I went through and analyzed it all, and it only takes like one sentence in the book. It took me a lot of time to analyze it. But the percentage of players who played major league baseball in 1884 and never played before or after, and it was huge. And I, I don't have them in front of me, but I'm thinking it was something like 38 or 39 percent 
of the players who played in 1884 never played another major league season. And I went to like 1883 and 1885 for comparison, and it was like 15%. So if you look at players who only played one one season, and I sort of thought, it's one thing I thought about doing for book was called one and done. Players who played only one major league season and, you know, unusual ones, odd ones. And they come, they come in clumps. And one of the clumps is 1884, where the player, they, all of a sudden there was this great demand for players. And, and what that demand did is it caused them to look places they wouldn't have otherwise looked, which is one of the reasons you had the breaking of the color line in 1884 with Fleet Walker and his brother Welday Walker playing for Toledo. Uh, you had Sandy Nava, who is uh, Mexican, playing for Providence. They were desperate for, play- for players. And both Nava and Fleet Walker were catchers. And the catcher was probably the most important position on the field, more important than the pitcher in many ways, because it was so hard to catch without any equipment. And no matter how good a pitcher you had, if they couldn't catch him, it didn't matter. It wasn't like today, you know, if you have a fastball pitcher, you got a big glove, any competent catcher can catch it. In those days, you didn't have any equipment. They had, you know, these, these little gloves, flimsy gloves, but the catcher was a very important person. So you find if there was a black player on a white team, they were generally the pitcher or the catcher. Because those, those, those are the two most important positions to play. And that's why you had to break into the color line. There was a, there was a need for players, a shortage. All right, what's this? Game time? Fantastic. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the Game Time app. And I will tell you, the Game Time app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning. Uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena. So about an hour before the game, I fired up the Game Time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket. I won't tell you what <laughs> the people around me paid for their ticket, but it was, certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs. And I got to watch the Knicks uh, uh, in a rare uh, moment of uh uh, amazingness, uh, kick the snot out of the nets. Uh, but that's uh, game time is uh, the place uh, to get your last minute tickets. Uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals, flash deals, they call them, uh, and last minute tickets. Uh, they, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want sports and entertainment and music, that kind of stuff. The images, the seat views are just perfect. They're great. That's that's always like the, the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a uh, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there. And of course, they've got a lowest price guarantee, including event cancellation protection. So you know you're going to be covered in case. As a matter of fact, that the Game Time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section uh, and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. Uh, don't believe me? Try it for yourself. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS 
for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the GameTime app. And uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at GameTime.co. Uh, but get the app, download the app now, create an account, and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. It's game time. Thank you, Game Time, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation. How about the stadiums, the playing fields? Um, was there any sharing of facilities? Uh, by the way, uh, between the American Association and the National League, too, uh, or were they all in separate sort of uh, bunkers, shall we say? They were, they were in bunkers pretty much. The only thing I can remember, and I, I may be missing something, but in New York, the American Association and National League teams were owned by the same company, the Metropolitan Exhibition Company. And the Metropolitans had a horrible field. Um, it was built on a slag heap, uh, mosquitoes, uh, just a terrible play location. And the Giants played in the polo grounds. There were several iterations of the polo grounds. This was the first iteration of the, I think the first iteration of the polo grounds. And then you know, the Metropolitans weren't drawing well, and they realized that the Metropolitans were the better team. They eventually won the American Association Championship. So then the uh, they started playing at the polo grounds on days when the National League team was not playing. So they shared that the second half of the season, but you know, not not exclusively. Uh, they had to go back to their own grounds if the Gotham's were in town. And I, I think, and this goes later, it's sort of beyond my time period. But there was time where they both they had back-to-back fields. It was a screen between the two fields. They had two games going on at once: the Mets on one field and the uh, Gotham's on the other. Oh, that's great! I, you can you can imagine the excitement if they compete directly against each other. I mean, imagine trying to be a ticket taker or a seller for those uh, those two competing events. Yeah. So, um, I, the other differences, maybe the differences are also helpful too, because I, you do mention a bunch of other things, uh, among a bunch of other things, uh, the union association, um, uh, decided to use a, a, what they felt was a more lively ball even, uh, to kind of stand out from those of the other two. Um, did that make a yeah. difference And what other sort of differences were there amongst the three? I, we also know the, the, uh, uh, the American Association was playing on Sundays and 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 uh, had a lot of beer flowing in the stands. But any other differences besides those? The big, biggest biggest difference was the pitching. Uh, the pitchers' uh, freedom of motion was generally it was gradually expanded. When they started out in 1871, they had to pitch below the waist, stiff wrist. Then they went to sort of an underhand throw where you could snap the wrist. Then they went to below the waist. And then they went to below the shoulder. And by 1884, in the National League and the Union Association, there was unrestricted pitching. You could pitch any way you wanted to. You'd throw overhand for the first time. The American Association was still restricted to below the shoulder, although pitchers tended to ignore that. That was a big difference. So when they went in the World Series, they had to pick the rules. And I'm going from memory here, I think it was the American Association rules that prevailed. Uh, and the ball, the uh, Wright and Ditson ball, George Wright and Ditson's company, uh, 
was used by the union association because they thought it would give them more offense. But what you, you also have to realize that these players had very rudimentary gloves. So when you have a lively ball, it, it, it hurts. <laughs> it's, it's hard to catch. So uh, you have a lot more errors. So you not only have the ball being hit harder, so you get more, you know, not home runs, they didn't have any home runs, more doubles, triples, but you get more errors because the ball is very hard to catch as it's coming at you at a, a faster speed. The, the pitching was the main, main uh, difference. Well, how would you, based on your research, judge the quality of play across those three leagues? Were they, were they all similarly competitive and or uh, interchangeable, or was the Union Association sort of lagging behind given its the haste in which it was created and, and came onto the scene versus the other two? Oh, I think there's no question the Union Association was inferior of the three. And, and the people, there are many people who think it shouldn't be a major league. Uh, the, you know, I, I made an argument done for the National Association being a major league, in which I think it was. I think if you, it, the quality of the play there was better than the Union Association. It was clearly in third place. Uh, between the National League and the American Association, the players, you know, switched leagues a lot. And I don't think there was a tremendous difference. National League might have been a little better, but, you know, not noticeably different. In the World Series, of course, Providence, the first World Series of that year. And, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, made that year so interesting. We had uh, the breaking of the color line, three major leagues, first World Series. It's just a lot of things going on. And Providence swept uh, the Mets three games to nothing. But a lot of that was Hoss Radburn. But, they, you know, they, you, would think, you would think they, you know, sweeping the World Series would make them the superior team. Well, as the year played out, um, how how does how does the how how does that season sort of project itself? Right. I mean, was it uh, a cornucopia of baseball, given there were three leagues or was it sort of showing was it clear that that, you know, in some markets uh, the game wasn't sort of. Um, benefiting, uh, so to speak, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm especially curious to know, you know, if the union association kind of, um, you know, self-destructed through its own sort of inabilities to stay stable and money and players and quality of play and that kind of stuff, or, and, or the other two, let's call them established leagues might've, I don't know, somehow accelerated or added some fuel to the fire to perhaps help the union association along to a, uh, a quick and, uh, and timely death. They did everything they could to destroy the union association. If you read the correspondence of Abraham Mills, and I quoted a lot of it in there, their goal was to destroy it because they thought that the union association would destroy baseball. That's why they called them the wrecker. Uh, it, it was a difficult thing to start up a league. If they hadn't uh, gone after him with such, vengeance uh they might have made it but they might not have to uh it, it, it was it was a lot of baseball that year the economy was going down i think it would have been difficult but the national league and american association did everything they could and at the end they took lucas into their league and once lucas because what lucas really wanted was a major league franchise so the reason they started the union association was they wouldn't let him in and once they gave you know to get a major league franchise he had to get he had to form his own league and he wound up supporting the other teams in the league. He had not only had to pour money into his own team, he had to pour money into the other teams to keep them from failing. And he wasn't going to do that again. So basically they bought him off. 
you can come into the National League as head of the St. Louis. They had a spot when Cleveland uh, decided not to play, and they let him into their league. And once he you know, said, you cut the head off the monster, the rest of it will die, because there was no way there was going to be a, league, a union association without Henry Lucas. There was one, I said, if there was ever a league that was a creation of one person, it was the union association and Henry Lucas. Uh, it was it was his league. At what point, from your research, do you think uh, it becomes evident to everybody that that is the solution here? I mean, is it kill off the union association first and then we'll talk? I mean, I, 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 you wonder how much leverage, if you will, if you would even call it that, Lucas would even have in a conversation, you know, after the demise of a league that he spent all his time and money and effort trying to build up and compete. Um, I'm just curious as to like the dynamics of how that conversation and that absorption, if you will, or that, that entry into after the demise occurs, like uh, was it sort of after the season and then he comes back begging and groveling or, or were the other two leagues kind of just battered and bruised enough where it's like, Hey, you know, this guy's really serious. He showed his intention. Um, we could use more people like that in our, in our system. I think it was it, what you know, they were trying to get rid of him, and they lasted a season. And he had only said, if we last one season, we'll be good. We'll, we'll stay in there. And what he did was to keep the going forward as if they were going to play in 1885. And he didn't say at the end of 1884, you know, we're, we're dead. Although they almost were. Uh, he talked about bringing new teams in. He was going around, he, very actively recruiting other teams. He tried to recruit Indianapolis, Detroit, from the National League. So he was definitely keeping up the, the pretense that he was going to be around in 1885. Uh, the eastern half of the league was gone. Baltimore said they were gone. Boston was gone. Washington was gone. Uh, but it was going to look like a, a league of Western teams. And he kept going with that. He held scheduled meetings, brought people in, brought potential equity partners in. So they knew he was in trouble, but he wasn't giving up. And that was the way to get rid of him. So we've got an open franchise here. We've got a city in St. Louis. You know, he's got his team. Uh, and, and one of the big bargaining points was the, any player who had gone to the Union Association was blacklisted. So Lewis, Lucas's biggest stars were on the National League and American Association blacklist. So the question was, were they going to let him into the league but not let his players in? Which is kind of tough. That here's the guy who started the whole thing, you're going to let him in, but now you're going to tell all these players that they can't play. And more more so, do you want to start play without some of your best players, some of your biggest stars, some of your biggest gate attractions? So it took a tough stand at first, but then it came down to, well, okay, Lucas has these players. We don't want to bring him in and weaken him to start with. So the players are eventually all, all the blacklisted players were eventually let back in. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, it wasn't like he came to them grumbling. He was still at least pretending to be a viable force. And I think they felt he needed, you know, one blow to knock him down. <laughs> and, or, or the league needed one blow to knock it down. And that blow was, taking Lucas in because once Lucas was in the rest of them, just there was no way they could ever have a leak without him. So that, but that you know, did, I don't know if you're, I, I'm sorry, John, I don't know if you're going to get to this. One thing I want to make sure we talk about is um, chapter, you know, the, the chat first half of the book, which is talking about the different uh, managers, the, 
problems of alcoholism, the umpires, all those things, because that was really interesting to me. That was one of the most interesting things and that I found. And I said, find out where things, where the sources take you. That was one of the most interesting, interesting things I found, those, that first, uh, those first few, few chapters. No, absolutely. Let's hear about it because I, I want. I'm just. It, 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 if you're, my, if I'm a player, if I'm a fan, um, I, I, you know, even if I'm a sports writer in, in a competitive market, I, I got to just think this is just heaven because I've got so much available to me. Yeah, it, it, I found that that um, as I said, find out where where it takes me. Where it took me was was finding out what these people were like in the first. Really, almost half of the book is what was it? What was baseball like at that time? Uh, it's a chapter on the owners, the magnets, the Al Spaldings, the uh, Sodens, Arthur Sodens, uh, Chris Bondera, some interesting, unique characters, uh, managers, and there were there were two managers that I just found fascinating. They're they're people no one has ever heard of, and but in their time they were famous. It was Dan O'Leary and hustling Horace Phillips. I am doing a presentation at the uh, 19th Century Conference in Cooperstown next month about hustling Horace Phillips. They were shysters, hustlers, and major league managers. They went around, they went from team to team, they'd get caught stealing money, they'd get arrested, they'd wind up managing someplace else. Just a fascinating story. And how these people with such shady reputations could keep getting hired as managers. Because they could actually, they could make money. They didn't always leave the money in the coffers. Sounds like college, but they would ba- sounds like college basketball coaches to me uh, these days. <laughs> Maybe things haven't changed. Yeah, yeah you, you're, you're right. Uh, and, and then yeah, focus on umpires. Uh, umpiring then was such a dangerous profession. Who would want that uh, job? Especially given the, the rascaliness of, uh, of the players. and, and the, 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 Who would want that job? Seriously. Yeah, rascally is a very kind word, uh, Tim. Uh, I mean, they, they, they were threatened with guns. They were actually physically assaulted. Uh, they had to be hustled off by the police many times. I mean, it wasn't a matter of, you know, Billy Martin kicking dirt on you and yelling at you. It was a matter of somebody coming at you with a gun. Uh, and these guys, you know, they made decent money, you know, for the time. But uh, it was just such a dangerous profession. And what made it, more, made it worse was a lot of them were incompetent. Uh, you know, the rules changed. A lot of them didn't know the rules. It was, they weren't really biased as much. I mean, there was some bias, some hometown bias, but mostly they were just incompetent. So you're making bad calls, and the fans get all over you. The players get all over you. And, and they were just you – know, Adrian Anson was just a horrible umpire baiter. And there were some episodes I wrote about where these people were just being, you know, like run off the field and hit and beaten. And uh, it was just a, an incredible – story and uh then the other group talked about was a chapter called the drunks and one thing i really hadn't focused on as much as how serious the problem alcoholism was in the 1880s in baseball uh far worse than performance enhancing drugs or anything players would be drunk during a game and you'd see newspapers writing about the season's preview it wasn't just you know who's good at second base uh who was a good hitter they, some papers would go through the entire team by team in their drinking habits, like which one were the worst drunks, which ones had the best habits. Uh, it was a scouting report based upon that. And someone, I think it was Dr. Rob Bauer wrote, said alcoholism was the second thing they looked to after ability. 
it was it destroyed so many players and it was such a problem there would be of nine players you know four or five problem drinkers on the team uh some teams the entire team was was alcoholic the only thing that saved them was that the other teams were just as drunk so uh, and, and some of them got in so much trouble after hours uh it just it's the one thing i said what i learned that i didn't know about was was how big a problem that was so you know certain things and, and that uh you know i didn't know when i started that i i knew when i finished yeah st louis should have been called the saloons not the maroons <laughs> so let me so let me, back to the maroons for a second uh because this sort of gets into the wonkiness of, of some of this of our little show here the the it's interesting because we, we talk about you have and others have uh, the debatability of the Union Association being uh, denoted as a major league, which I think it now has been. Is that correct? It has. It, it has always been, as far okay. as I know. They had the they had the committee. I think back in nineteen sixty eight, they decided what was a major league and what wasn't, and they made it. Right, because you look at the, the history of the Maroons, right? It only lasted for three seasons, and this can lead to my other question about what happened to Lucas post all of this in 84. Um, you know, the Maroons started as a United Association team in 84, but then were absorbed or brought into uh, the National League for the uh, subsequent two seasons. So it, it, the, it was a three-year consecutive franchise across two leagues, the latter two being in the National League. So, you know, to, to not consider – I mean – that history, right, brief as it might have been, um, you know, crosses at a league that only existed a year, and that's part of its its tree, its lineage, and, and that kind of stuff. What, what happened, though? Lucas had basically what he wanted in a franchise in St. Louis in those two years. It, it uh, Why did it disappear so quickly thereafter? He ran out of money. The team did very poorly. You know, Chris Vondera, who was uh, competing with him as the owner of the American Association team, was pretty good at promotions. And Lucas had a bad team. He couldn't play on Sundays because he was in the National League. He couldn't sell beer at his park. He had to charge twice as much as Vondera for admissions, and he couldn't compete with them. And you know, sadly enough, Lucas wound up losing all his money. You know, it, it, nobody really knows how much he inherited, but I think the consensus is he inherited over a million dollars, which was a lot of money in the 1880s. And I suppose he lost it all. He wound up working at a menial job, working for the city of St. Louis and died at a relatively young age. Uh, just lost it all. Lost a lot of money in baseball, and I'm sure he had to lose it somewhere else. I don't know where. There was a newspaper headline. I think you quoted it uh, somewhere. Um uh, says famous sportsman who spends millions in fruitless baseball war dies in poverty. Um, I yeah, guess no, well, it of... wasn't me. That, well, yeah, it wasn't me that quoted it, but uh, yeah, no, that, that's that's what happened to him. That's um, I mean, that's uh, uh, but okay, was it fruitless? I mean, I, I granted, you know, he didn't sort of see any success from it, but what what if anything was gained from this approach aside from? two years in the national league uh, to a, at least a little bit to his, to his benefit. Was there anything that sort of comes out of this, that, that, that was positive or was it just literally a giant footnote in baseball history? Well, it was good for the players because uh, it boosted their salaries. He paid good money, which meant the other team, the other leagues had to pay their players more in order to keep them. So it helped, 
boost salaries and you know they go down afterwards but it's sort of a ratchet i mean they don't go straight back to where they were there's a lagging effect so it helped the players that's no question of, of that and obviously there were there were fans that went to those games so somebody was enjoying them you know say maybe you only drew you know 500 a game that's 500 fans who got to see baseball uh, a lot of men got to play major league baseball who didn't as i said didn't play before or afterwards so a lot of people got to play in the major leagues I mean, there were good things that happened to it. And, and the, the, whatever bad he did wasn't lasting. You know, it bounced back. It's not like he destroyed baseball. If, if 1984 was the end of Major League Baseball, it's say, my God, Henry Lewis destroyed baseball. Henry Lucas destroyed baseball. But, you know, he didn't. Baseball is fairly resilient, and uh, it bounced back. So I, I think some good came of it, mostly for the players. Uh, provided a lot of jobs. And uh, no lasting harm was was committed. Describe 1885 then after this is all done. Obviously, a new St. Louis franchise is brought into the National League with Lucas at the at the helm. Um were people looking wounds were they, you know, was the economy kind of now uh getting people to kind of really just pay more sober, if you will, attention to uh, the sport at hand uh was their peace again, if you will? between now the two leagues uh, having sort of vanquished there was, the challenger. There was peace. And I think it was everybody just sort of taking a breath and getting back to normal. Uh, the American Association dropped four teams. They went back to eight. The National League continued with eight. Uh, the Unionization, Union Association went out of business. Uh, the minor leagues were a little more sane about what they did. Everybody just sort of took a breath and went back to normal. Yes, but of course, baseball has never been normal, and it certainly wasn't that normal there, there much thereafter. <laughs> but that normal is a an absolutely relative term. So, um, I, I guess, is there anything that you wanted to know about this year in baseball's history um, that maybe somehow still eluded you, or is an open question still, or there's something to be still unearthed, uh, players or or managers or, or people that maybe kind of I don't know in your research you kind of sort of ran into a dead end and didn't find out the proverbial rest of the story well the one thing I would like to learn more about was was Henry Lucas there was less about him than I really I know you know you just searching through newspapers and you know it was kind of the same stuff and I'm, I'm hoping you, you mentioned a quote about Lucas and I'm wondering if it was from Justin McKinney's book on the Union Association. I know he was doing one. We've talked about it. And I, I will pick that book up and hopefully learn more about Lucas than I knew found doing my own research. Um, he was one that interested me more. Other than that, I learned a lot. You know, there's, there's no real burning open questions other than those that may never be answered. Um, one of the things I touched on was um, the whole Fleet Walker Cap Anson incident. And an unanswered question, you know, because Anson's, uh, I think, unfairly branded as the man who kept the blacks out of baseball. And what I found that was very interesting was that um, when Anson, after Anson retired from the National League, he ran his own team in Chicago, and he often played against black teams. I, I have a picture in the book of him with Rube Foster, the founder of the, of the uh, Negro National League. And it, it's a mystery. Like, what, what was Cap Anson thinking? You know, you read his autobiography, he's clearly a racist and a bigot, which didn't make him unusual in his time. But what caused him, if, if he was, you know, the bet noir that caught, uh, you know, <laughs> the 
pun, I think, but that kept blacks out of baseball, you know, why was it all of a sudden, in this, you know, hanging out with Rube Foster? Well, and he, and he supposedly befriended those black players in the South. They called the Black Ants, and, and Cap gave him one of his jerseys, which he wore during games. So that, that's somewhat of a mystery. It's, some, it's more clear than it was when I started. But, you know, it's an answer we'll never know. I don't think. I don't think, that, you know, unless there's a smoking gun out there somewhere, I don't think we'll ever know. Well, here's also a process question, uh, and I try to ask this for people who who uh, we talk to who are, you know, if they're not uh, sort of as the stories or the teams or the leagues or the situations, you know, are, are years and years in the past. Obviously, they become more history projects than they are sort of, you know, real time narratives or, you know, oral histories or that kind of stuff because people who are involved aren't around anymore, right? So, how do you personally prevent yourself from uh, going down rabbit holes and just searching and researching and learning for its own sake uh, versus remembering that you've got a, a book and a deadline and, and, and stuff to write, uh, uh, you know, in the process. Or, or do you enjoy that and you do meander and you'll get it, you'll get to the writing when you get to it? Well, you said I have deadlines to meet. That's not true. I have never written under deadline. I have never had a contract before I started a book. I've done 11 books. I write the book and then I go to a publisher. Um, I don't want to have a deadline because I, do, I don't do this for a living. I do it because I find it interesting and I meander. And sometimes it becomes part of the book. Um, I, I'm, when I wrote about uh, the baseball's first inning, the end of baseball, I digressed onto 19th century boxing, cockfighting, dogfighting. And there's a whole chapter on that. I found it fascinating. I, I spent far too much time at it, but you know, that's not my, I, I don't make a living at this and I finish when I finish. Uh, so I, that's, I absolutely, you say, how do you stop doing it? I don't, I find little things. I'm researching now on uh, baseball's expansion and our transfers in the 19th, franchise transfers in the 1950s. Pouncing on Mayor D'Alessandro of Baltimore, who's bringing the Browns there. His, he was the father of Nancy Pelosi. His son was in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, I'm I'm digging into that. It's it's just uh, it's more interesting than watching television for me. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't watch much television, so I, I this is what I do for entertainment. Well, we need more people like you, Bill. Frankly, to do this kind of stuff because uh, it helps populate shows like ours too. So, um, <laughs> so what what other? That's, that's why that's why I do it, Tim. <laughs> sure, right. Just for the once every five year appearance on the uh, Good Seats. <laughs> um, what so besides baseball and some of those little stories that you you just mentioned? Are there any other teams or situations or or leagues or stuff? I mean, obviously you've you've delved into football uh, in the past, and obviously very early years baseball uh anything else in those two sports and or elsewhere in the sports landscape that you think might be or is going to be your next project well i have two things i'm working on one is i said that baseball's franchise shifts in the early 1950s and mid 50s from the braves to milwaukee the browns to baltimore and the athletics to kansas city i'm working on that which i find interesting and uh then another book on just Sports, you know, controversial aspects of sports in the 1960s, all different kinds of sports, not heavily in baseball and football, but, you know, so many of the, uh, you know, in football, you had, you know, the black players walking out of team strike, going on strike. You had a lot of racial strife. You had women doing things. Um, you had uh, just football players opting out, dropping out, like Dave Megacy, Chip Oliver, George Sauer. 
you know, when there was, you know, sort of the how the counter cult, almost almost like how the counterculture affected sports. And I, I wrote about that. I, I wrote something that I, I stopped. I've done, I don't know, 20, 30,000 words, something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the rebellious Olympic athletes. I wrote about Bernice Guerra, the first uh, professional umpire. I wrote a long story about Bernice Guerra. Uh, Robin Smith, the jockey. You know, and I, I, that's something I didn't know she was married to Fred Astaire. It was interesting. She was an interesting character. Uh, so it, that, those are the two things I'm working on. And I was doing, you know, little articles here and there for somebody. Did an article, uh, it was uh, for Nine Magazine on Jim Bowden's Ball Four. They have a column that's loved it, loathed it. I, I did the loathed it. And I really didn't loathe it, but I had to loathe it for the article. What I didn't like about the book Ball Four. That's coming out in the fall, and you know, little things here and there. All right, and I can't let you go without uh, your um, uh, your personal opinion about uh, this upcoming uh, baseball season uh, and the new changes uh, that are are coming with the the pitching clock and the bigger bases and 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 all that kind of stuff. Are you a fan of that? Do you care at all? Do you prefer the old game back in the day? What of it? Well. We're never going to see the old game back in the day. And that's, I think any fan who's my age uh, likes the baseball, their youth better, because that's why I became baseball fans. You know, it was that game that we really liked. And it's, it's different. I, I don't feel the same now as I did when I was a kid. I love the change. I love the rule changes that have shortened the game. I, I, there's nothing exciting to me about watching people dawdle around the mound and take four hours to play a game when there's only a few minutes of action. I love that part of it. Outlawing the shift, I thought, is one of those problems that people should be able to solve it. You watch a game, and you see a runner at third base, one out. There's nobody on the left side of the infield. The third baseman is playing short left center field. You can, one, steal home, drop a bunt. Uh, all these things you can do, and they wouldn't. they just swing for the fences. And to me, you make them do it, but that's, that's, that's okay. I'm okay with not shifting if they're not going to do it. Um, you know, the ghost runner is, I think has to be because the pitching staffs can't last more than nine or 10 innings. The one thing that I really dislike about the game, the most that has changed is the change in the pitching. Uh, just having the, the old style pitchers, we had a pitcher's duel. The starting pitcher was against the Tom Seaver against Bob Gibson, you know, just the personal duel. Now it's just I go throw my 100 pitches or 90 pitches or 70 pitches or whatever, and I'm done. doesn't matter what the situation is. And then some of the, start, the relievers would come in. You know, in the old day, the reliever would come in and win or lose the game. And Goose Gossage was in there until the game was over. He'd come in in the seventh inning, and if the game went to the 12th inning, he's probably still in there. Now, you know, they just come in, they throw their inning, and they're done. There's no personal drama. There's no pushing them. You know, to me, sports is pushing your limits. And today they don't push limits because they want to make sure that you know, it, there's no, no unpredictability. And to me, unpredictability is the joy of sports. And so the analytics have just drained that out of it. So that's not this rule changes. You know, the, the rest of them, I think, will they're neither here nor there. I just I, I think they need to do something to speed up the game because I just couldn't stand sitting there for four hours watching nothing happen. All right. Many, many thanks to Bill for that conversation. The book must get. It's crazy 
1884 season. It's called Baseball's Wildest Season. Three leagues, 34 teams, and the chaos of 1884. It is published by our friends at McFarland, and you can get a copy wherever fine books are found. But of course, the easiest way is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. All you got to do is search up this episode number 307 with Bill Rysak, and you will find a convenient link to the book at Amazon. It's the quickest way you'll ever get the book, for goodness sakes. Paperback version, the Kindle version, whatever you'd like. And uh, we get a couple of shekels of referral love when you do that. So we appreciate that. To no end helps us keep our lights on. Um, while you're there, why don't you check out two of Bill's other books featured on this little show in earlier episodes. For example, our episode number 33, the uh, National Association, the early uh, years in baseball of the National Association, one of the predecessors of what became organized baseball. The book there is called Black Guards and Red Stockings, A History of Baseball's National Association. And also check out from our episode number 23, where we talk about the New York Titans of the old American Football League, the book is called Crash of the Titans, the team that became the New York Jets, also written by our guest this week, Bill Reisek. A uh, fascinating story of that sort of three-year sojourn uh, in the polo grounds, in uh, the old polo grounds in New York, before the uh, Jets became the Jets and domiciled themselves in the then brand spanking new Shea Stadium in 64. Both of those, as well as the, the current book, available wherever you find good books. And again, through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Check out the episodes, check out the books, buy the books. Thank you. Uh, let's see. How about uh, email? You can send us some. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And on social media, you'll find us in a couple of places there too. You'll find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Thank you to Jerry Payne, as always, for your audio excellence uh, this week and all weeks, all seven years of weeks. And uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, slowly but surely building this audience into something of significance and some scale. We, uh, we're selling some books for fr- for our guests. We appreciate that, and they do too. Uh, we're getting all kinds of great notes from people semi-famous and even a few famous people too. Shall remain nameless till we get them on the show. And uh, we're just always uh, we're we're heartened by the uh, the people that we touch on this uh, this little show. We get some great input and great comments from people. Keep them coming, and uh, let's keep growing this uh, thing into something a little bit more substantial and uh, some more fun and frivolity to be had. Thank you, of course, as always, for listening. Until next week, take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.